in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his, his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you on this Christmas Eve morning, opportunity to celebrate Christ's advent, his birth. I hope that's something that you all are able to do over these next several days as you get together with family, with friends. It's something that my family and I are looking forward to. I just want to, uh, I, I, I hope that you are able to continue to see Christ in everything that you do. And I wish you a very Merry Christmas. We are in the middle of our Advent series where we have been studying how Jesus' coming to earth was not something that made everyone feel good. It was not a warm or a cozy event. It was not sentimental. He wasn't simply an adorable baby that everybody oohed and odd over. But we have been studying and seeing just how disruptive his birth was to everybody's life that he came in contact with. We've been seeing how his life turned everyone else's life upside down. And we've been noticing that how people responded to that interruption tells you where their faith is. It tells you, their response tells you what they thought about God and what, how they valued what God was doing in the world. This morning we're focusing on the shepherds and on how they responded when God interrupted their lives. 
And the very first thing that strikes you about these guys is how nothing strikes you about them. They're just ordinary guys, putting in their time, doing their job out in the field, verse 8, keeping watch over their flock by night. Just ordinary shepherds doing ordinary shepherd things. Nothing unusual about them or about what they were doing. There is nothing about them that tells you that the most important event in human history has just happened and that it's about to touch them personally. And then suddenly there is nothing about their world that's normal. They are standing in a flood of light facing an angelic messenger. Have you ever been outside on a dark night when there's a full moon? One of those crisp nights where there's no humidity in the air and suddenly there are just shadows that are sharp everywhere. You can see every tree and every bush. You can see every blade of grass. So bright that you swear you could read by the moon. Imagine yourself in that moment. This light is that bright. But imagine that there are no shadows because we're told that this light is not coming from any one direction but that the glory of the Lord shone around them not coming from the angel. You have to get rid of those artwork pictures that you've seen. They're not helpful. It's not coming from a spotlight in heaven, like from a star. You have to get rid of those pictures as well. The glory is around them. It's all around them. There's no way to get away from it. Glory shining from all over. So many space places. Do you think that that might, verse 9, fill you with fear? It would definitely fill me with fear. That's how they start, filled with great fear, and that's not how they end. Instead, they go from fear in verse 9 to proclaiming God in verse 20. From listening to the angels to proclaiming, verse 17, what they have been told concerning this child to everyone who is around. Now, how did that happen? How did they go from fear to praise, from listening to proclaiming? We'll look at three things this morning briefly. First, they found themselves in the presence of God. Second, though, they discovered God's heart for them. And third, they learned God's provision for them. So three things today. They found themselves in the presence of God, discovered his heart for them, and learned what he had done for them. Let's dive in. First, the glory of the Lord shone around them. What, what does that mean, the glory of the Lord? In the Old Testament, when God came near his people in a very personal way, there was often a brightness that was there. There was light that was there. The light was not God, but the light showed you that God had come close in a very different kind of way than he normally does. It was a sign of his presence in the world, a visible symbol, his glory that you could see that told you he was there. And so, for instance, when God gave his covenant and his commandments to Moses to then give to the Israelites, the Israelites saw God's glory on the top of the mountain where God met Moses. And what they saw looked like fire. It's a dangerous kind of light. They saw fire that had settled on the mountain. Or you can think about to the time when the tabernacle was first finished. And the glory of the Lord filled it the visible marker that God had taken up residence in the tent. The glory of the Lord filled it so that even Moses couldn't enter in. Similar thing happens later when the temple is finished and God's presence fills the holy place so that the priests could not serve at the time because the glory of the Lord had filled his temple. It was an amazing thing 
that God's presence would be right there, that you could see his glory, but it was also a frightening thing. God had warned his people earlier that they could not get too close to him, that there had to be a curtain in the tabernacle, in the temple, something that separated the place where his presence was and where everyone else was, so that the people were protected from God's holiness. Because if they weren't protected, his holiness would break out against their unholiness. One person, just one, the high priest, could go behind the curtain, but he could only do that once a year in order to make atonement for the people. And even then, he had to come exactly the way that God had commanded, or even he would die. You learn in the Old Testament, glory of God is wonderful, it's amazing. You learn that it's not safe, however, for unholy people to be around a holy God. That's why we studied this a couple weeks ago. That's why when Isaiah goes into the temple and he sees the Lord, sees him high and lifted up, that's why Isaiah says he's ruined. Because in that moment, he saw the Lord, what? Unveiled. He saw the glory of God that was no longer safely hidden behind a curtain. He knew he was in trouble. Now here we are, several hundred years later, the shepherds are surrounded by the glory of God. God is on the loose, surrounding them. They're standing in the visible presence of the holy God. They see his glory all around. They are seeing exactly what the seraphim had said when Isaiah saw the Lord in the temple, that the whole earth is filled with his glory. That's always been true. You and I live every moment of every day of our lives surrounded by the glory of the Lord. So did the shepherds, but they'd never experienced it like this before. And now they have come face to face with the reality of this world. That this world is 100% completely about God and about his glory, and they are filled with great fear. And they should be. I want us to think about glory here in a little way that we don't usually. The glory of God is seen in this world when this world works the way that God intends it to. You see God's glory when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when things work here according to his will, you see something of who he is, and you start to get a sense of what he's like. The problem, however, is that most of the time you and I are not as excited about his glory as we are excited about something else that we think would be more glorious. And so we don't hunger for his will to be done on earth as much as we hunger for life to work out the way that we think it should. In that sense, what are we doing? Most of our lives, we are hungering for a different glory. Let me say it this way. We hunger for our own glory. And when I say it that way, that sounds a little strange to our ears. So let me give you a quick way to see this. You can ask yourself two questions. Ask yourself, what upsets me? What gets me upset? And what do I delight in? What upsets you? What delights you? Ask yourself those questions, and the answer to those questions will tell you whose glory is most important to you. Ask yourself those questions and ask, is, is what upsets you something that ruins God's glory, that keeps it from being seen, that, that keeps his 
glory from being loved and adored, is that what upsets you on a regular basis? Or is what upsets you something that gets in the way of what you wanted? The whole earth is filled with the glory of God, and the car in front of you will not move as fast as you'd like it to. And so you talk to them through the windshield, trying to coax them along. Whose glory are you upset about? The whole earth is filled with the glory of God, and the Amazon order got delayed, won't come until after Christmas. You find yourself grumbling about how Prime is supposed to do better. Your Starbucks order is not ready on time, and it wasn't right either, and so you sigh to let everybody know how patient you're being with them in that moment. Whole Foods ran out of what you were counting on for dinner. The sweater that's on sale, all out of your size. Your relatives made you change your holiday plans at the last moment, and the people around you know that you're not happy. Why? Because you've helped them to know that you're not happy. Did any of those things tarnish the glory of God? <laughs> no. They did not threaten his reign or rule on this earth. They did not hide him from being clearly seen. They did not keep his will from being done on earth as it is in heaven. What they did was they got in the way of what you wanted. And so you got upset. Not because the glory of God was diminished, but because yours was somehow. Because somehow you were kept from having what you thought would be glorious. And in that moment, you were not living for the glory of God, but for the glory of yourself. You can see exactly the same thing if you ask the opposite question. Ask what delights you most. What is what delights you that God's glory is seen on earth or that you got what you wanted? If you're not sure what upsets you or delights you most, ask the people around you <laughs> because they know what upsets and delights you most based on what you say and what you do. They know whose glory is most important to you. The answer to what upsets you, what delights you, will show you whose glory you live for. And if you and I are honest, the answer is that most of the time we're more interested in our glory than we are in God's, even while we live in a world that's filled with His. What upsets and delights us shows that we are glory hogs. We are glory stealers. We try to take something that should demonstrate God's glory and we somehow use it for our own. The shepherds have come face to face with the reality of whose world this really is. It's His glory that shines all around them. That's an experience that every one of us in this room will have one day. We're all going to stand in the presence of this holy God, and we will see his glory all around us. The shepherds in that moment were filled with great fear. Their reaction makes total sense. To live your life for your own glory and suddenly be spotlighted by the presence of the holy God, the one whose holy glory destroys anything unholy, how could that produce anything but fear? Here's how, point two. It's when you discover God's heart for you. The angel quickly says to the shepherds, verse 10, fear not. 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Fear not. God's purpose is not to terrify you. That's not his goal. He has something else in mind, something better, something that glory hogs should not expect, something that we could not expect. He comes near the shepherds. Why? He wants them to have joy. That should blow your mind. They, you, me, have worked overtime to replace his glory with their own, with our own. And his response is not to crush them, not to shame them, not to call them out, not to embarrass them, not to make them pay. His response is to give them something better than they could ever have wanted for themselves. He doesn't even bring up any of the things that they've done doesn't make them talk about all their glory stealing, doesn't work through and process it all with them. Instead, he tells them what's on his heart, that he wants to give them more than they have now. He wants to give them joy. Think joy. What, what, what's joy? Joy means that you take delight in what God delights in. You don't take joy in things that God hates. You don't take joy in hurting someone, getting over on someone, doing something foolish that sounds like fun. You can do all those things and, and be happy. People are happy in those things, but that's not really joy. That's a false joy. God's not promising that. He's promising something different. God promises that this news from the angel about this baby who's been born, this news will bring you true joy. And that's God's heart for everyone who hears that announcement. He wants you to delight in the things that he delights in. But if you've been stealing glory, you should ask, how is that possible? How can you delight in what delights him when you've been set on delighting yourself, in living for your glory instead of his? It's because of what this news of this baby is going to produce. We'll get back to the specifics of who this baby is in a moment. But look at what the end result of this child is going to be. It's foreshadowed for us in verse 14. The one angel suddenly surrounded by a multitude of the heavenly hosts. They're praising God. They're saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Heavenly hosts expect that the news of this child is going to produce two things. That it will bring glory to God and that it will bring peace on earth. There is now a bridging of heaven and earth because of this child. Because of this child, you can have glory to God in the same moment that you have peace on earth right now. It's possible to have peace, even if you've been a glory hog. Which is amazing, because when you steal God's glory, you don't feel peace, right? When you, when you sin, you know those things. You, you, you feel guilty. Your conscience is not at peace. You feel anxious. You feel like someone's watching you, saw what you did. Or when someone confronts you, you blame other people, or you blame circumstances for why you did what you did, or, or you make excuses in your own mind. You justify why you really didn't have any other choice? Why do we do all those things? Why, why, why do we feel guilty and, and why are we defensive? It's because we do not feel 
this kind of peace. We do not feel at peace with God. We feel the effect of having wronged him. We feel the effect of having lived for our own glory. Now, why is that? Why, why does doing something wrong feel like a big deal even when you can look at it and say, boy, that really wasn't all that big? It's because when you do something wrong, hear this, this is important, when you do something wrong, the impact of what you did is never simply based on the size of what you did, but it's always based on the size of who you did it to. It's not the size of what you did, it's the size of who you did it to. What do I mean by that? If you go out of here today and you slap a tree, you might hurt your hand, but realistically, that's about the extent of what will happen to you. But if you go out of here and slap a person, they might slap you back. If you slap a policeman, you're getting arrested and fined. And if you slap the president, you're going to prison for a good bit of time. The exact same action has levels of consequences based on who you do it to. And so as you progress up the scale of being, the penalties get worse. The more that someone or something reflects the glory and the authority of God. The greater their authority, the greater their glory in that sense, the greater the penalty there is for assaulting it. Now what's that got to do with God? Scripture tells us that whenever we sin, whenever we steal glory, regardless of who we sin against, that ultimately we're sinning against God himself. Since he made that person or that thing that we sinned with for his own glory. So when we treat it in a way that steals glory from him, we sin first and foremost against him. And when you sin against this infinite being, there's an infinite penalty. That's why you feel the weight of that. And it's a penalty that God just can't set aside. He can't say, oh, it's okay, it's not a big deal. God is holy in his justice. Justice is very important to our world right now, and it should be. It is so important that officials will publicly apologize when something under their, in their jurisdiction has been done that was unjust. Justice is so important that people do the hard work of figuring out how much do we need to pay now for something that was done then. See, we all know that you can't just say, oh, it's okay, it's not a big deal. Justice is a very big deal when there's been injustice. And justice costs a lot to set right what was wrong. So if God just said, oh, it's okay. You can steal my glory and nothing has to be paid back, then he would not be what anymore? He would not be just. He would have settled for injustice, which means he would not be holy anymore. His glory would not be glorious anymore. God's justice demands payment in ways that are even more just than any human attempt could ever be. And so all you need to do is steal his glory once and you no longer have peace with God until that glory is paid for. 
But that's something that you can't do. How long would it take to pay for just one glory theft against God? His glory is infinite. Steal from him, and the payment is infinite. Which means that a finite person like you and me will never finish paying. If it depends on you, you'll never have peace with God. You'll never have joy. Unless, unless God can figure out a way to pay for it so that you can have peace with him. That's what God is announcing to these shepherds. He's announcing that he's personally inviting them to have joy. That because this baby is here, they can now be at peace with him. You have to be very careful how you hear what God is promising. He's not promising peace to everyone. We sing a hymn uh, this time of year that's a little misleading, a little town of Bethlehem. Because at one point it says, and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. Which is not quite right. That's not what this passage says. Jesus, in fact, when he's grown and teaching, will say later in his life, Matthew 10, that he did not come to bring peace to the earth, but he came to bring a sword. That even families might be divided against each other based on whether they're loyal to him or not. God is not promising here peace in general to the whole earth, not universal peace. He's promising very specifically, verse 14, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or as other translations put it, with those on whom his favor rests. Which I think then makes you want to know, well, who are those people? <laughs> what is it that pleases him about them? What, what is it that pleases him about the shepherds? Clearly, it's not their social status. They're about on the lowest rung of the social ladder that there is. Clearly, it's not some outstanding moral character. They're afraid like any normal person would be in the presence of God. Why is he pleased with them? It's the same reason that he's pleased with Mary, pleased with Joseph, pleased with Zachariah and Elizabeth, pleased with all the Old Testament people of God. He's pleased with them because he chooses to be pleased with them. He chooses to communicate his message to them, his invitation to them. And he comes and he says, here's an invitation. You can have joy. You can have peace. There's nothing noteworthy about the shepherds, nothing righteous about them, just like there's nothing noteworthy or righteous about you and me. But God seeks them out casts the light of his presence on them not because they were seeking him out in the fields at night but because he was seeking them they were out in the fields watching over their flocks god was watching over them that's the only reason they get this announcement because he made sure that it came to them personally which is exactly the same reason that you're hearing it now. Because God has made sure that you've also heard what the angel had to say. You know that message from the angel. It's a personal invitation from God. Why? He also wants you to have joy. And he wants you to have joy because you now have peace with him. Which brings us to point three, how? 
How is peace possible for glory thieves who cannot pay for what they've taken? Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There are hints there of how special Jesus is. If we were reading Luke straight through, then we've already heard of a Savior before. Mary sings about him in chapter 1, verse 47. She sings that her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. And that word Savior, the one applied to God, is now applied to this baby. And you understand there's something not just mortal about him. But he's also fully human. He is Christ. That means he's the Messiah, the human being that God had promised to send to rescue his people. The angel knows that this baby is both divine and human. Divine, meaning that he can deal with an infinite amount of payment. Human, meaning that he can rightly pay what humans owe because he can legitimately represent us. This is how you can have peace with God. God became human to pay for the glory that you've stolen from him. That's also hinted at here. How does Jesus start his life? He starts it with someone wrapping him in cloths, lying him down in a borrowed bed. It's actually how he ends his life. Someone else will wrap his body in a cloth and lay him in a borrowed tomb. You can't see that and not think about Isaiah 53 where we're told that he'll be crushed for our iniquities, for our glory stealing, and that the punishment that is given to him will be enough to bring us peace. That's why a passage like Ephesians 2 will say that God, Jesus reconciles us to God. He makes peace between us and God through the cross. It was there in his body that scripture says he put our hostility to death. He killed the hostility that we had against God. He put to death your hatred, my hatred of living for the glory of God. Jesus puts that to death so that we can now live at peace with him. You start to realize that God is different from anyone you've ever met. God doesn't see your hostility and threaten you so that you stop acting hostile. He doesn't make you pay to deal with your hostility. Instead, he ends it, puts it to death, all gone, by paying for what you never could. That's all hinted in this announcement that the shepherds heard. That God himself broke into history to make people peace with people who hated him and his glory. That's the announcement that moves them from fear to praise. It's the announcement that turns them into the first evangelists so that verse 17, they told the people around them what they knew about this baby. They weren't forced into telling other people about Jesus. They were not guilted into it. They had found the one thing that would give them peace with God. The one thing that would allow them to live in the middle of God's glory without being afraid. And that one thing was just too good to keep to themselves. So what do you do today? Tomorrow, the rest of the Christmas season? What do you do when you don't feel at peace with God? What do you do when you feel anxious or guilty, when you said something, did something that you know was wrong? 
What do you do when you don't feel right with him? If what you do has anything to do with you, you're in trouble. Because if peace depends on you, you will never have it. You will never be able to do enough to satisfy divine justice. You cannot stay in prison long enough to pay for slapping God. Apart from that, you're also always going to end up stealing more glory in another day. You're going to make your debt bigger and bigger. If what you do with guilt depends on you, you're in trouble. And some of us know what it's like to live in trouble. Some of us live feeling depressed, joyless, crushed because of what we know we've done. We know that we can never make up for it. We're terrified that someone might find out. We cannot imagine standing in God's presence one day, spotlighted by his glory, and we are depressed. Others of us are not depressed. We're angry. We're angry when someone, anyone gets too close and points out some place where we did not do everything right. We resist conviction, hate correction, always turn it around, making it the other person's fault for pointing it out in the first place. Why is that? We're still trying to find peace based on how good we are. Here's the goodness of God. Here's the glory of God. He comes to each of us. He comes to the depressed, to the angry, to the hopeless, to the joyless. And he offers joy. Because he says that he will make peace for us with himself. So if you find yourself joyless today, if you are uneasy, not at peace, you know you're not at peace with God, but you're really not at peace with other people either. You're certainly not at peace inside yourself. If you find yourself there, do what Mary did. Treasure these things that God has said. Ponder them in your heart. Think about why Jesus is here. He already had perfect harmony with God the Father. He did not come to this earth to get peace for himself. He did that for you because he loves you. Ponder that. Treasure up that he came because he loves you. Not just then, he loves you now. Ponder how much he wants to end the glory war that you started. Treasure, ponder, think about it. And then if you've heard his invitation, take him up on it. Because God is pleased for you to take him up on it. I'm going to give us a few minutes to pray now. Invite you to, to just spend time talking with him. Tell him how you feel this morning. Tell him that you're tired of feeling guilty or angry. Tell him that you want to know deep down inside Tell him that you need to be convinced that what he did on the cross really was enough to give you peace today. Let's take a few moments in prayer.